welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. We're rounding out the year with a conversation that's different from anything else you've heard on Personal Landscapes. Until now, I've spoken with or about writers of travel literature, but this time I'm talking to a songwriter. It's also an excursion into one of my own personal landscapes. Steve Kilby is the singer, songwriter, and bass guitarist of the legendary Australian rock band The Church. If you grew up in the 80s like I did, you'll know them for the song Under the Milky Way. It was everywhere back then, from Top 40 Radio to an episode of Miami Vice, but it represents just the smallest fraction of this remarkably prolific artist's work. The Church have released some 25 studio albums, depending on how you count them. And Steve has also made at least 19 solo albums and has collaborated on over 20 albums with a wide range of artists and more one-off songs than I can count. He's had his visual art exhibited in both Australia and America, and he's published several volumes of poetry. He's also written a wonderful memoir called Something Quite Peculiar that paints a picture of life in Australia in the 1960s and 70s and tells the story of what it's like to master a craft, to play in bands, and to ride the roller coaster of fame. I wanted to talk to him here on the podcast because Steve's work was the single biggest influence on my own development as a writer. He also gave me a dose of encouragement in those early days of magazine features in when I was struggling to break through. So we referenced a lot of songs, albums, and books in our conversation. I can't include them here for fear of being flagged for copyright issues, even though it's his own work. Uh, but I've put links to all of them in the show notes, which you'll find on my blog, ryanmurdoch.com. I highly recommend giving some of them a listen, especially if you're not familiar with Steve's work. We discuss writing and lyrics, songs about place, the dangers of fame, and how music can recall our most intense experiences with vividness and immediacy. You'll join us midstream as Steve tells me what it was like to emigrate to Australia at age three and the strange new world he found himself in. was a sort of a a big disconnect i think is the word they use these days um my mother only really got over it right at the end of her life she really accepted australia she was always talking about this place called home i'm going home i'm we're gonna buy a ticket we're gonna go home um my father kind of jumped in and he sort of uh he enjoyed it as soon as he got here and he he realized in England, in London, he was just another sort of Cockney geezer, you know, like, but in Australia, he was, that had some value. If you were an American or an Englishman at that point in time, I think when I turned up in the, in the 1950s, I think that had an enormous amount of clout, you know, it seemed like Australia was really suffering from a kind of bit of a cultural cringe where it seemed like someone who was English or American was surely better than, a, than the local sort of thing. I think my father figured that out really quickly and he sort of, he learned to exploit that. That's a thing with travel as well. Like I find when I'm, when I'm in a distant place and I'm, I'm not from there and I don't belong, I can access places and, and people in social circles that I would never be able to otherwise it's a sense of being exotic and other, you know, you're somehow mysterious and you're Definitely. bringing something different. So, so did that rub off on you as well? 
No, I, I think by the oh these days, you mean? Like no, now, I mean in your formative years, because like in your memoir, um, something quite peculiar, you wrote about being trapped between cultures. You said, uh, "I felt my allegiance was to nobody, to neither country." Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I didn't really feel English. I didn't really feel Australian. I think, I think, yeah, traveling around, I never feel really at home, and I think that sort of being a stranger, being a foreigner. You can maybe naively claim a kind of an innocence if you've kind of broken the local mores or you've mm. sort of, um, you know, you haven't behaved properly. You can sort of go, oh, I didn't know. I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't know what I, yeah. It's funny because my brother just bought a house down that way where we first turned up and I went and had breakfast with my daughter and my grandson yesterday down the down in this city called Wollongong where my parents mm. turned up you know we thought we thought a lot about that and talked a lot about that um because still a, it, it's still a kind of a strange place down there it's really different to Sydney you wrote that your dad really did a lot to shape your early tastes in music as well right you yeah reference some some of his like like um Sinatra only alone only the lonely was that the album only yeah he well, we only had two records, and one of them was a Doris Day record. I don't know why he even had that. Um, and another one was Frank Sinatra, Only the Lonely. And sort of, it for a while there were, only, there were only two records and a very small record player. Um, I guess Only the Lonely got a few spins. Um, luckily, it was a very, it was sort of an accessible, very accessible record, and it was for a number of reasons. It was one of as. And once again, I'm just sort of, I'm putting this all together myself. It seemed like up until that time, singers didn't kind of sing in a naturalistic voice. Is that, Could I be right? Could it, could it have been up until, say, Frank Sinatra, maybe Bing Crosby before him, that, that male singers started to sing like, hey, baby, I'm feeling sad. Before that, could it have been like, oh, you know, or or some sort of affectation of like country and western, or um, with a strange, you know, like that? It seemed to me suddenly. I don't know. If Frank Sinatra is aware of this, or I guess a musicologist could say no, that isn't true. But it seems to me that at that point in time, Frank Sinatra started singing like an actual bloke, like I'm a bloke, I'm sad, and I'm singing in my own voice, and I'm singing conversationally. There's not this, um, there's not a huge wall of artifice. And in fact, some of the songs sounded like he was singing to me, you know, when it's quarter to three, there's nobody here except you and me. I could really, I was really transported to that bar. Um, all, all the things that happened on that record and the great lyrics were on that record. The bar was really high. I mean, someone had gone out and got Frank Sinatra all the very best love ballads, like torch songs, as we call them, the brokenhearted loneliness. Um, and there's the cover with him as a clown. Um, love's made a fool out of him. And there he is with a very, like, the absolute cream of, of the lyricists and the songwriters, plus an absolute incredible um, arranger in Nelson Riddle, 
one of the very best arrangers that, that ever was. And as he sings the songs, all the instruments jump into the song and, and maybe an instrument that doesn't play before or after that. And he sings, you know, he, he's sad and he saw his girlfriend in the window or something and a little flute might come in or a, a harp or the strings will sort of go to make you feel this, indeed, this sense of worry and, and concern. Um, so it was an absolute cracker of a record for me to start on. I don't know if it, I don't know if it'd been something else I would have sort of identified so strongly and, and started thinking about it. Plus, there were a number of kind of supernatural lyrics, my favourite being the song Angel Eyes. Angel Eyes, that old devil sent. As soon as you have that, you know, I'm three years old, four years old, and I hear songs about an angel and a devil, and, you know, the song finishes with, excuse me while I disappear and then the these tinkly sounds it's sort of like um it's like an episode of bewitched or something on a record so i've started thinking about all of this stuff when i when they would play this when he played this record and my dad would be talking about this guy frankie as if he knew him as if he, you know like he was his mate oh frankie you know i'm going to listen to some frankie and Plus, when we were in the car, um, there was car radio. Um, Dad used to, you know, listen to the songs of the time, and and we'd sort of have, in my own way, I was I'm only a little kid, but he'd sort of he would tell me about the songs he liked and he didn't like, and listen to this one, this one's silly, and he was a sort of very opinionated sort of guy, um, and I find it very hard to shake off a lot of the things he sort of inculcated into me about things. So we had, we had one record. It was a great record. My dad was a piano player. I'm very much interested in music. Um, he was almost like a stereophonic pioneer. He was one of the very first people I, I even knew or heard of to have a stereo, like right at the very dawn of their existence. And he had a demonstration record of what a stereo should be. So you've got a guy walking between the speakers going, let me see, what's the best way to describe stereophonic sound? And he's walking between these two speakers and you hear, him, you hear his footsteps going around. The kids would come around my house and I'd just play them this record, you know, and they'd be like, whoa, because no one had ever heard that shit before. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was sort of lucky. I, I sort of got a, a real, I got a real legs up there. <clears throat> with lyrics and i think that i was lucky that into my orbit came this record with truly i mean i would imagine even a youngster of today like a like a budding songwriter of today or even the oldsters in those days or whoever you were if you came across that record you'd have to agree that it's a bloody got some incredible words and some incredible music on it um even if it isn't you know your actual thing right to to listen to that kind of that sort of balladeering i know dylan obviously dylan's opened up a lot now you know done those he's done records of sinatra i think sinatra was like a widespread person whether whether people said so or not i think he had a his style and the way he sang 
um, had a lot of influence on a lot of people. So very lucky that 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 was the record that flew into my virgin consciousness. I think lucky that I had my dad who was like to talk about these things that I had to bounce ideas off. There's something too to be said for having that single record, you know, that you you don't have anything else to listen to, so you listen to that one very deeply. Like that's that was the case for me with with a lot of your music. Um, traveling through a place like Mongolia, you know, and I had three records with me. I had uh, After Everything Now This, uh, Remindlessness, and A Quick Smoke at Spots. Wow! And I would listen. I'd listen to those over and over every day, you know, as the miles went by, and I'd hear more and more and more things in them. As a and the other thing I found too was that. The songs that didn't really grab me at first, those were the ones I would keep coming back to, you know, by the end of that trip. And I, I still, when I read what I've written about that trip, I still hear those albums and the way you would phrase certain words. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, there were certain records, you know, when I grew up a bit, like T-Rex, uh, a couple of T-Rex records. I must have listened to them. I in In my life, I must have listened to these records thousands and thousands of times and there's something to be said for becoming that familiar with with something where and not having all the choice of having like i could sit down now i mean i'm just listening to music off my phone i could sit down now and go i'm going to listen to something and then in the face of the fact that i can listen to anything at all like anything and and it will take me one second to access it and have it playing it sort of like almost renders me not wanting to hear anything at all so i think yes there's something very much to be said for having that one record that got played a lot and then allowing you to sort of experience it over and over and over and the songs to work work their way in and then you start to anticipate all the things that happen in the songs I think I think that was yes, definitely a good thing. Rather than a parent who had say five hundred records, and every night we'd listen to something different. And you can see a lot of um, elements of your own work in in what you've just described about Sinatra's too, like those little those little sounds in the background. Like here, something you wrote in in the memoir, you talked about when you were learning how to make music. You wrote going over and over songs in my mind picking them apart aspect by aspect, I began to see the mechanics of songs, strengths, weaknesses, and sometimes the paradox of weakness transmuted to strength. I listened in on the inner workings, the small sounds and tambourines and whispers. I took apart the things that held it together, and I marveled at the way small things could mean so much in music, like a little violin or a distant guitar or some hazy voices drifting over a lazy song. I guess that's why your music is so layered, because you, you notice these things and you learned how to use them. I think when I first, when I first really, when I was really struck by songs, even when I wasn't yet a musician, I wanted to find out how how it was doing that. I think just like if you go out to dinner with a chef, and the food comes out and everyone goes, "Oh, that's nice," but a chef will be thinking, "How the fuck did you know the sauce taste like that?" I think I, I I think I had this I think I had this sort of willpower to deconstruct things and yes and try and figure out how it was doing what it was doing and then later on when I 
it all sort of came together at age 16 where I decide, where I've got my guitar, but bass guitar, and I was suddenly discovered this T-Rex record that I was like my thing I listened to a million times. I would I would just lie back and try and figure it all out. Like it seemed like I, I think with most people it goes like this. You put the record on and you go, it seems like he's singing to me. You feel he's, but then you don't take that any further. You just go, that's really nice. It feels like he's singing to me. Maybe you'd accept that on face value and go, as people sometimes write to me, it feels like you know me. It feels like you know you you know me and you've written this song for me because I didn't think anybody else would be able to put things in that way. Um, I was like, I wanted to understand how that illusion worked. I wanted to understand how could a guy who obviously doesn't know me or he doesn't know how I think or what I want or what I believe in, how is he pulling this off that when I hear his record, I feel that he's singing directly to me? And and I, I sort of worked hard at analysing that, how that was done. I used to love to fall asleep listening to records. You know how people say, um, oh, you put these tapes on of learning French and you fall asleep and French is playing. When you wake up, you can speak French. I, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of falling asleep to music and sort of somehow in that state, I sort of, I learned more about it. Um, so, yes, I was very, I was very analytical trying to figure it all out. Um, I sort of feel perhaps arrogantly that gave me the jump on anybody else I knew because it's I it seems very few people. It took a long time before I met anybody else. I met lots of guys. There were lots of guys in my neighbourhood playing guitar and playing bass and hitting drum kits and sort of singing, and, but none of them, none of them sort of questioned where it was all coming from. And they weren't interested in doing it for themselves either. They were sort of, and and they were all wanted to play the most dull kind of music there was, this sort of rock around the clock type of thing. I felt my quest to want to get to the bottom of it all was sort of, um, was a sort of, a, I felt was a unique thing to me because not not many other people were looking at songs like that. Nobody was taking it as seriously as me either, which got, still gets me in a lot of trouble. I met someone just the other day who was telling me how great Elton John was and I got quite sort of angry and nasty after a while as this thing took over and went, you know, I was going, it's all about his intentions. What are his intentions here? Just to entertain people in an arena, you know, and I, I sort of get nasty and angry and sort of all head up. Just like I guess if you go out with a chef. And you go, oh, that was a nice meal. And he goes, nice? Mm. You think, you know, you dare serve up potatoes like that? You know what I mean? So people who, people who specialise in, in industries and um, sort of have uh, been in them all their life, they sort of have different standards of, of how they want things to be. I was very much mm. caught up in the whole songwriting thing, just as much as being a musician or it, it seemed to me that so, that the songs themselves were the most important and wonderful thing, not the playing of them. We used to have lots of in arguments in the church 
where Marty and Peter would say, oh, listen to this wonderful guitar. And I go, yeah, but listen to what that singer's singing. And they go, oh, just ignore that. I, I can't ignore that. I can't ignore stupid singer and all those stupid words just because someone's going doo -doo 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 over the back. Or contraire, I would be like, they'd be going, listen to that horrible guitar work. And I'd be, yes, but listen to what the singer's singing. It seemed to me that it, the song and the singer was the important thing, not so much what all the instruments were doing around it. Although, of course, there's the brilliant, all those brilliant cases where it all matches up. You've got a brilliant song and a brilliant singer and a brilliant instrumental section, but not always. You said that you felt maybe arrogant saying that, that you you started looking at songs earlier than everybody else and trying to deconstruct them. But it's, I don't think it's arrogance. I mean, you put in a lot of hard work. You wrote about some in your early days of playing in bands, you know, years before the church. Uh, you would play a show in Sydney and then go back to your house and, and there'd be a party going on downstairs, but you'd go upstairs and sit in a room and compose songs on a four-track tape machine. And you talked about, you know, how learning how to get reverb, you know, by, yes, by looping yeah. the tape a certain yeah. way and learning how to double track your voice and all these things. I mean, that is a really painstaking, incredibly slow process to to build what you built. It's really amazing. Well, thank you. I'm glad somebody appreciates all that. Um, we had an argument once in the church. I can still see we we're driving down this coast, coming back from a gig in Queensland. And... Um, it was dawning on the whole band that the songwriter was the guy who made all the money. And um, I had no idea of that. So I didn't start off a band going, oh, I'm going to be the songwriter because I'll make all the money. I was completely naive. I didn't, I didn't understand the way it all worked, that the, that the band paid for the record out of their advance. But there was no songwriting advance to speak of that at least the record wasn't connected to that. So when the money started rolling in, I started making money straight away, whereas the band often didn't make any money at all. Me included in the band as one of the players, we didn't earn any money because we were paying off the $100,000 or whatever it cost to make our record. And one of the, one of the guitarists said, um, this is fucked up. We've spent all these years learning to play guitar that isn't represented in how the money is spread out. And yet you were just a guy. Actually, one of them said you were an idiot in a room with a tape recorder, and now you're making all the money. So when when we were doing the the real job of figuring out how to play guitar, and that is a real job, and I could understand where they were coming from. Now we've here we all are in our sort of early twenties, and um your the the discipline you learned is paying off in spades, but us who learn to go, that we're sort of like, we're not making any money. Um, so I've often wanted to call my next record an idiot in a room with a tape recorder because I guess that I guess that's what I, in many ways, that's what I was. I was an idiot in a room with a tape recorder, fiddling around with sounds and recording and stuff instead of like, uh, you know, a guy paying his dues by learning how to play guitar like Eric Clapton or something. So how long would you say that process took? Like when you started fiddling around with this four track machine until you had songs that you could actually record and perform that, that were any that were any good, say? Probably a year. I got it in nineteen seventy seven. It was one of the very first ones in Australia. It was like a turning point in my life. I can still remember sitting at work 
and I put the deposit on it, and I borrowed the money from the bank. It was a lot of money, and before because before that I'd been in recording studios, and there was this terrible attitude in there where they weren't trying to help you do what you wanted to do at all. Mm-hmm. They were preserving their hegemony over this mysterious machine and all these mysterious buttons, and and you'd sort of like, oh, I was hoping, no, you're not doing that. Why not? And so, but I'd like to know, I can't do that. We haven't got any time, you know, we have to, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, their um, their attitude and the language they used and all of this stuff, I felt like the few times I did go in recording studios, in big ones and small ones, I went in a couple of big ones when we I got record deals that never amounted to anyone, anything, plus I, I, I went into small studios in Canberra where there was a guy with a four-track, but it was always the same thing. They seemed like they were the enemy and they were very combative um towards me and so when i got the machine um and and tiac made these available so you could do this at home i'd say it probably took me a complete year to do anything that was even worth worth listening to and then um probably another year i started writing some of the songs that got onto the church's first album i remember when i first wrote chrome injury and i had Da, 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 da. And I had a thing going boom, tsh, boom, tsh. and I remember um, I was thinking, "Wow, I'm getting somewhere." Um, but what it also did beyond actually being able to write those songs, it meant that when we finally got in, got our record deal, and when we finally got into a proper studio again with an engineer and a producer. I was no longer so easily bullied and cowed by these guys. And when they said, oh, no, you can't do that, I go, yes, you can. And what do you mean? No, we do it like this. This is what we'll do. But you can't have the, you know, you one of, one of the bees in my bonnet were, was in those days, if there was a, any sort of lead guitar line, that suddenly had to come up really loud and the other stuff had to go down really quiet to make room for it. And my thing was, no, that's supposed to be sunk in there. What do you mean? You've got to hear it. No, but I don't want you to hear it. I want that in there with the guitar chords so it all becomes one thing. Oh, no, mate, you can't do that. And I remember sitting there. It might be in my book. I can't remember all my anecdotes now, but I was actually sitting in there fingering wrestling with a guy, and I had my finger on top of a my little finger on top of a fader, and he had his thumb underneath, and we're looking at each other as he's trying to push the lead guitar up and I'm trying to push it down and we're looking at each other over this fader as we're <laughs> wrestling over this fucking thing. Luckily, because I, because everybody liked my demos, um, you know, as soon as I started doing some good stuff, people were going, wow, how are you doing that? I was armed with the confidence that when I went in the studio, it's like guy would be in there going, I've been making records for 30 years, mate. You can't. And I go, I don't, I don't fucking care. This is what I want. I want to have that vocal like that. I don't want to have that on there. I don't want this to sound like this. You know, I, I want to do it this way. This is my process. This is how I'm going to do things. And and then it would work out because I, the song that I brought in on my cassette that everybody liked, I'd be sort of like, well, if you like that, you've got to listen to me. This is the way. You can't just throw it all out the window now. And so um even when Bob Clearmountain turned up on our second record, he said I was one of the most difficult people 
he'd ever worked with. And I was because I knew what I wanted to do. And I wasn't just, up until then, the musicians were all like, you know, some guy go, no, you can't do that. You've got to do this. And they go, oh, okay, you must know. And then everyone would get home with their tape and put it in when they got home that night and go, fuck, why does it sound so abysmal? It's nothing like what I wanted. So what I'm most thankful for to the machine that I bought was that it gave me the language to be able to talk to these people and knowing what I wanted, knowing that this sound that was created by three different things, even if they couldn't hear it and they didn't want to do it that way, in the end I would usually prevail and our early records sounded mostly the way I wanted them to sound. And I I was I was very stuck on my ideas of what I wanted the guitars to be like and how the vocals should be and, and stuff like that. So I was very, very thankful. Otherwise, I it's different now. When when you go in the studio, the engineers, I don't think they're so bad as they were. They were really back in the late 70s and the early 80s, they were really they didn't, they weren't there to please you. They were there to sort of preserve this, you know, sort of like when you go in a, in a garage and your car's broken down and the, they, there's this sort of mystery that the, the mechanic's trying to preserve sort of makes his job seem more important and maybe he can squeeze you for more money as well. If you don't understand what's going on, that's the kind of way they want it. I was really lucky that in 1980 when we got in a big recording studio and we started making our first real record, because of the four-track experience, I was able to hold my own. I guess that's why your music sounded different than everybody else's back then. Like It never sounded 80s because these producers would come in and put their own stamp on things, and as a result, the entire decade sounds sort of the same. There you go. That's true. Um, it was hard because I was at war with everybody all the time. It's not easy always getting what you want. And there's a title for a song. Um, to to get what the way you want it to be means you're in constant, almost every time we've ever made a record, especially in those days, I was at war with the rest of the band. I was at war with the engineer and the producer. I was at war with the record company trying to get the thing done the way I wanted it to be done. I. I mean, obviously, I wasn't always right. There were, <clears throat> there would have been, there were, there must have been times when I wasn't right. And there was probably somebody trying to talk me out of the stupid thing I was doing, going, no, Steve, you've got to fucking listen. You can't do that. But most of the times, most of the time, they were a lot of pe people felt they were in the fucking way of, and they were slowing things down. And there was a lot of, um, the guitarists, often they wanted to kind of, they wanted to make a meal of everything they did and sort of like, mm -hmm. like every time they did something, they wanted a medal and then, oh, it's not, oh. And sort of like I wanted to work really quickly and get things done quickly and there was a lot of sort of sitting around holding people's hands that I didn't, I wasn't very happy with. So anyway, to, to have that kind of total control Without the success, if I had been immediately successful, my first record had sold billions of copies, I guess I could have had that. I mean, I'm sure Prince wasn't sitting there arguing 
with everybody to have things done the way he wanted, that he had this enormous success behind him and he owned the studio. That for me, I was always, I was always fighting with some motherfucker to get things being the way I wanted them to be. Are you allowed to say motherfucker on your show? You can say whatever you want. Yeah, you've you've already okay. you've already sworn a strip off uh, right, oh. right from the beginning. But so in your memoir, you you wrote the perfect description of the church. You said all members of the group are quite nutty. Only each believes he is the sane one. We're like Europe at the outbreak of World War One, constantly plotting against itself. Yeah, um, the others wouldn't see it like that. They wouldn't. They they wouldn't have seen it. It was funny. It was funny. As soon as we had some success, everybody, everybody sort of turned into Joe Rockstar. Um, it's really funny, actually. I heard a, um, I heard a conversation that was on a podcast, and it was between Waddy Wachtel and Ringo Starr. And Ringo Starr says, "Hey, Waddy, what are you up to these days?" And Waddy said, "I'm producing this fucking band, but everybody in the band." As soon as they had some success, they thought they were the fucking Beatles. And Ringo goes, "Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean." <laughs> but um, no, they did. Everybody, as soon as we had some had a bit of success, it went to everybody's head, including mine. Um, but apart from some very early idyllic days when we were like a gang of brothers or something, I always I felt like. We were all arguing all the time, and often when the they would get me alone, they would sort of pick on me. Mind you, I deserved it, and I would um, I would definitely say rotten things. I remember once we we're in Melbourne; they didn't talk to me for three weeks. Once we we're in Melbourne, and they said it's your turn to drive in Melbourne. I was, and I'm like, I'm terrible with directions, and I still can't drive around in Melbourne. I said, please don't make me drive. And I remember what I'm saying. We learned had to learn how to drive in Melbourne. Now you have to learn to drive. And I said, "Hey boys, why don't you leave the songwriting to me, and you guys can navigate the maps?" There was this like uh, uh, in, intake and air, <gasps> and then nobody spoke to me for three weeks because I was saying stuff like that. Um, anyway, not that this is the within the scope of this interview because we're discussing lyrics and music, but let me say. Success wasn't what I hoped it would be. I thought I would be incredibly popular with everybody I knew, and I thought that the guys in the band would all love each other like brothers. And I thought everything would be happy and rosy and cool from then on in. But then I just found out it wasn't, and there were there were a lot of other suddenly a whole load of other issues came running in. Uh, into my life and fighting with people in studios to try and get things the way I wanted them to be was one of those things. It's interesting too how dis disillusioning it is. It can be to um, have a breakthrough, right? Like uh, you're doing all this work in a room by yourself. You're writing all these songs, and then somebody publishes you, and suddenly everybody starts treating you differently for doing the same things that you've been doing all the way along. You know, like there's this uh, this recognition sort of cast things in a in a different light but it doesn't change the work that you've been doing there's a whole load there's a whole load of other problems when you get successful when i look at paul mccartney no matter how much i love his music 
I'm amazed at what a regular and ordinary guy he remained throughout all of that. He was the most successful and famous and fated musician in the whole world. No one had ever had that kind of success before. And yet it seemed like he remained a pretty down-to-earth guy. And I'm afraid that it, with my meager, tiny little bit of success that I had, it sort of went to my head. And I did become more arrogant and more, I don't know, sort of rude to people and dismissive. Belittling people, I believe, was a word I might have heard back in those days. Um, but I was sort of, I was very, I very much, I felt like this is my thing. I've dreamed this all up. And people who got in the way of that, I didn't have time for. Yeah. So I, if I was doing it all again, I would really, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't be like that anymore. I wouldn't be, I think it, it cost me a lot in many ways to be that sort of thorny, argumentative little bastard that I was. Um, it's sort of it's sort of like the rest of the band hated me and the record company hated me and the producers hated me and the guys in the radio stations hated me. And when we did videos, those guys hated me. I was sort of like like a real irritant. I, and I look. I'm, I don't get any pleasure out of saying all that. I, I like. I squirm and shudder to think that the person I was, that I was running around this world, being so ungrateful and so rude and horrible, just because I could write some fucking songs. You know, like there was no, there was no manual that came with all of this saying, "Hey, here's an idea. If you have a band, try being nice to them." Um, you know that it didn't sort of occur to me to do that, nor nor to them either. Um, but I would definitely do. I uh, he said he said sore and sorry. I would definitely do things better if I had the chance to do it all again. But of course I won't. So, um, but I I'm not proud of that side of things, the way that took off, and how how I was such a a sort of an an ass. You know, there's something really strange about that whole experience. I think, like the the travel writer and novelist Paul Theroux once wrote about a time when writers were these distant figures. You know, they were inaccessible and mysterious, and they weren't trotted out to festivals and signings and podcasts. And there was a time when rock was like that too, when these rock stars were these distant figures that you, they weren't human mm -hmm. in a sense. You know, like you didn't see these kind of. Yeah. Do you think it was better that way? Yeah, I do. Than it is today. Um, I think. Um... Actually, I just read a whole book about that. And it was like saying it was a book of the death of the rock star saying now the most famous rock star in the world, you can look at his Instagram and there he is sitting at home feeding the dog and taking the kids for a drive and all that accessibility to everything. And you don't even have to walk down the record shop anymore to find the records. They're all there. They're already all there. Yeah, I think it does ruin the mystery. Definitely, um, there are yeah. some people. The less you know about them, the better. I think. Um, well, because the music speaks for itself, right? In that sense, like, the music. The music spoke for itself. Yeah, 
I had no, I had no clue who the church were for about 10 years, I think of listening to your stuff obsessively. Like, um, I still remember too, when the first time I heard one of your songs, it's like, um, it's like the Kennedy assassination, you know, or 9-11. Like I, I knew exactly where I was at that time. I was sitting in front of the Spencerville Hotel in, in a car, listening to the radio while I waited for my dad to finish his beer and come, you know, and come out and drive us home. And I ended up going out and, and buying Starfish. And then uh, I bought Gold Afternoon Fix through the Columbia Record and Tape Club on the strength of the earlier album. Two, three years went by and I, I was in the record store and next to my hometown and I found um, of Skins and Heart because I would go and look in the seas all the time to see if there's any yeah. other church records. And I mean, that's very different, you know, going backwards to that very raw early album compared to Starfish. And another few years would go by and I went to university and then I I went to this, uh, they had the CD warehouse place and I found Seance and then I found um, Priest Equals Aura in the, uh, in the import section. So that's all I knew, you know, for for maybe 10 years, these records. And CD Warehouse had this machine you could or type in an artist's name and it would puke out the discography. So I punched in the church and it fucking started spitting out page after page of of uh, album titles and solo stuff. And I had no idea this existed. But but the, I think the most disillusioning thing was um, the internet. When the internet came along, I was in maybe fourth year university, and I've been listening to you guys since I was sixteen. So, um, and I, after after I finished searching for naked ladies and uh, you know obscure eighties television shows, I punched in the church, and I found I think I found the Shadow Cabinet website, ah, and I yeah. started I started looking at uh, interviews and stuff, and I thought, God, this guy sounds like an asshole. <laughs> like it wasn't it wasn't what. Uh, it didn't match the lyrics I had heard in my head and the music I heard in my head. And I thought that was truer in a sense, you know, at a, at a fundamental level. It wasn't until I started um, looking up some of your prose poetry and some interviews that you gave about uh, writing and things like this that I kind of moderated my opinion. But yeah, like I didn't want to know about the people behind the songs. I just wanted to to hear the music on its own terms. Can you imagine, can you imagine if like William Shakespeare was around and people are going, hey, you know, Tell us about the tempest, and he's going. Yeah, you know, I didn't really. You know, I. I think the less said about anything's the better, and the, the more, the more like that was how it was for me with T Rex. I went in a record shop one day and I saw the cover and I bought it, and then about two months later I went in another record shop and there was another T Rex record and that was it, and then there was no more. The the music magazines weren't writing about them there was nothing you could look up or access or find out and you were just stuck with these two records and it was sort of um without all that information of oh you know mark boland and what his real name was and what he'd done and what he thought about this and what he thought about that and um just having these two things i think that's the best way for anything to ever be and that is also the way it will never, ever be again. Um, mm. As long as we have the internet, as soon as a movie comes out, as soon as someone writes a book, as soon as someone puts out a film, um, suddenly there's full access. You know, you can see the guy and his wife and his children and where he lives and the sort of car he drives and um, the name of his caboodle. You know, it's, it's suddenly it's all there. Um so there definitely was something to be said for that mystery. 
it's it's true what you said. I I sort of worked really hard to create all this mystery, and then every interview I did, I shot the mystery down by being whatever I was being at the time, an arrogant twerp or a, a sort of washed up junkie or whatever the fuck I was being when when over the course of those 40 years, I was sort of disillusioning people about about the music and the songs and stuff. Um, you know, it, things appearing in a vacuum definitely is the best way. Some Something you don't know anything about is definitely has more room to sort of resonate and be all the things you want it to be a lot more than something where you can instantly know everything but i can't see how that's ever going to stop now um you don't even you could be a singer that comes out of nowhere makes a record and becomes really successful and even if that singer doesn't do any interviews himself or it's it's still all there, you know. There's still all the information about who he is and what his real name was, and everything you want to know is kind of you can find out these days, even without the person aiding and abetting the the process by, you know, doing an interview. But yeah, I totally agree with you. The less, the, and the church were definitely one of those. Probably the less you knew about it, the better it was for sure. Well, yeah, definitely in terms of your songs, I, I like that you um, you always refused to explain what the lyrics were about because I didn't I didn't want to know what was going through your head when you wrote these songs or if they referenced something in your life. You know, I I, I was concerned with the feelings and images they called up in my own mind. Yeah, and they worked really well. Like you've described it as um, like a portal into your own mind, an abstract canvas for people to lose themselves in. Yeah, the sort of lyrics you write. Yeah, the less you know, the better for sure. Absolutely. You know, you go and see a magician, you see him pull the rabbit out of the hat. That's it. There's no more. The more that you see and the more he tells you and the more it's explained and the more angles you look for and it all gets ruined um, by all of that sort of thinking about how these different singers I liked, different songwriters, by analysing how they made this stuff seem to appear in my own mind, I sort of figured out the way I could do that in my own way. I could sort of, the combination of music and words, I could make, I could have that effect, like a portal into somebody's mind. That's what I was very much wanting to do. And all the stuff around it ruins it. But we already know that. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of writing lyrics, like when I was starting out as a writer, I dissected the work of um, Lawrence Durrell, who, who, the author of the Alexandria Quartet, you know, and, and Paul Theroux and Henry Miller and Kerouac. Um, I read everything they wrote. And then I read their collections of letters and biographies and then you know critical studies about their work to see if I agreed with it or not, or if I'd missed anything. That taught me a lot. But the single biggest influence for me, uh, as you know, was your work. I listened to your stuff late at night with headphones, you know, with a printed sheet of lyrics in front of me. And, and I paid attention to um, how the way you sang a word would change the tone of the images forming in my head. Like it, it gave me um, an innate sense of the rhythm of words, you know, and I, I hear that rhythm and pacing when I'm editing now, it just, just sort of becomes intuitive. And uh, I got that from listening to your music. 
How did you learn to write lyrics? What did you follow a similar process of of dissecting other lyricists? I mean, that's what I did. I would I'd listen to especially it struck me that when I discovered Mark Boland that he would have very many simple phrases. Um he'd have a phrase, is it love that makes us rock? And in anybody else's mouth, that would just sound absurd. And I would have sneered at that. How did Mark Boland pull that off to sing Is It Love That Makes Us Rock? And you realize that it's not just it's not just the words you write, but it's the way you sing them. Um, Mark Boland pronounced the word zebra in English as zebra. I write upon my zebra. And that's suddenly just that... Um, strange that he would use the american pronunciation of that it made it sound more exotic i would think about things like that for forever the rhythm elongating the vowels mispronunciation um mm. i also i was also noted that a lot of rolling stone songs i couldn't really hear the lyrics uh, a lot of rolling a lot of Rolling Stone songs, if you go and listen to them, the really classic ones, the lyrics sound right up the back, sort of bur half buried under the the music. And I've sort of realised as well that there's a there's a certain something to be said for not understanding all the lyrics. And as soon as mm. I could, I stopped this process of them printing out all the lyrics. Um, yeah. It took me a little while to figure that out and stop it. Like as soon as the record... As soon as you made a record, the record company go, oh, we want the lyrics so we can put them on the album covers because people want to read them. And um, I go, oh, yeah, here, here they are. Yeah, print them out um, so people can read the lyrics. And then I, after a while I thought, no, fuck that. They're better. It's better not to, that the lyrics can work better if you never see them all written down. Of course you gain by having them all written down, you gain clarity and, you know, people know exactly what you're singing, but there's something really to be said for a song going past and you can never really understand what they're singing. Um, so all the time I was being a serious kind of songwriter and that I wanted to be, and I was always thinking about ambiguity and, how things should be sung and but i think it took me a long time before i i wrote anything i was really happy with well into the church i think it was around around heyday or just before hmm. heyday um that i really felt like i really came into my own the lyrics that i wrote on heyday i felt like they were my lyrics and nobody else would have or could have w wanted to have written those words um so it took me a real long time i think i think it's just because i persevered over and over and over and over and i wrote hundreds and thousands of songs um people never got to hear all the bad ones luckily um as i was sort of inching my way towards writing some decent lyrics um they're all kind of buried in obscurity and no one will ever hear them but you know i, I wrote lots of really awful songs that thankfully mercifully no one will probably ever hear 
a few of them surfaced on a record called Baby Grand, um, which someone found all our old demos and they remastered the cassette and put them out. These records that were these sort of tapes that were made in like 1975, and I was definitely hadn't hit my lyrical stride then. I don't know. I just thought I always felt lyrics were really important, and having also growing up with the Beatles when they really they really hit their stride, and I mean I've said all this before, but suddenly the the records that were on in the top of the charts they were also beautiful and artistic records it wasn't all that kind of you know when the beatles first came out the lyrics left a bit to be desired i mean no one's thought so at the time because no one was writing good lyrics but as soon as they started writing you know sergeant peppers it was like wow nobody had understood up until that time that pop music was allowed to be that brilliant and sort of you know wonderful philosophical and poetic 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 lyrics and surrealism and all of this sort of stuff i guess nobody really understood that it had a place in rock and roll up until then all songs have been pretty much you know i love my baby my baby left me i'm sad and then suddenly there was this whole new sort of um this whole thing opened up and I was there, you know, I was a kid buying all those records and lapping it all up. And and so it became really important to me and lyrics became really important. And um, although I wrote the lyrics quickly, there was a sort of a lot of, a lot had sort of gone into the pre-thought of it all. And a lot of kind of rules, I guess, I'd made up in my own head of what could work and what couldn't work and to never let a, a line go by without trying to milk it for all the ambiguity and sort of surrealism you could get out of it. You know, I was just always accumulating knowledge and thinking and all the time I was, when I was swimming up and down in a swimming pool or having a walk with a dog or riding along in a car, I was thinking about music and lyrics like just a constant mm-hmm. sort of obsession yeah that was one of the things that i really liked about your stuff right away that hooked me initially was um that the lyrics were literate you know there were references to elysian fields and dorian gray and you know even sci-fi and film noir yeah um you made literate sound cool and sound like rock you know for someone's kind of secretly bookish like me yeah um it spoke to me I mean, not secretly bookish, but I mean, I never hid that I read. I never hid that I read so much. I just didn't advertise it. I guess. Yeah. Conflicted with my getting in trouble at school and stuff. But I mean, yeah, those and those references. Each of those references could contain so much because if you've read this stuff too, you know, a reference to something like Elysian Fields contains multitudes of uh, layers and echoes and meanings. So just connecting those things up in a rock song, in a you know a three minute song, they leave so much more to explore. Well. I'm glad. I'm glad that happened um, because, you know, for every guy who wants to hear the Elysian Fields in a song, there's still, you know, a thousand who don't, who still want, they want the, you know, my baby left me, um, you know, we're going to rock and roll all night. Um, 
I think Mark Boland was the first guy, once getting back to him, he was the first guy that was sort of started to reconcile all of that for me, where I could see in the records of his that I bought that he was mentioning mythology and religion and stuff. Um, he was sort of reconciling it all in there. He was, and obviously the Beatles as well, and, and Dylan all the time. It occurred to me that, you know, the more you can get into a song, the better it is, and that not everybody wants that, but the people who do want it are really um, sort of turned on by hearing the sort of liter literary references and stuff. Um, it was immediately something I wanted to have in my songs, and a lot of my early arguments were with these, you know, guys playing in the garage on a Sunday afternoon, they wanted to have, we're going to rock, rock, rock around the clock. We're going to rock around. I still found that, I found that really tedious. And the sort of lyrics, the lyrics were relegated to, they were just some words to sing, but they didn't have any real, they didn't have any real sort of meaning or anything. Um, and when, when I started to strike, you know, music that where the words really did to me have some meaning or some anti-meaning, some kind of impenetrable meaning, the way they were being sung coming from behind a wall of distance and irony or, um, detachment or something that, that really had a big effect on me. And I sort of, I, I always wanted to do more and more and more with the lyrics and music um sort of have otherworldly things and sort of mysterious things the search the elusive search for mystery which as soon as you find it it's and sort of talk about it it's gone um you know as you see by this interview i haven't yet what haven't not, not once in this interview have i really been able to hit that pithy thing that we both want me to be able to do. It's sort of, it's, it remains elusive because the songs have done it and there's nothing more, nothing more I can possibly add to it, even though yeah. you want me to be able to, and I want to be able to add more, but I just, I don't think I can because yeah. it's sort of the perfect song already had contained an entire universe and that universe can't be added to by someone talking about it afterwards, which is kind of one of the, I, I guess, one of the great tragedies. It's a bit like sport as well. I always feel really sorry. I mean, I don't watch any sport. Every now and then I put the TV on and, you know, how are you guys, what are you going to do this weekend? You know, oh, we're going to stop them scoring and uh, we're going to concentrate on scoring. And you know, there's nothing to be said. You know, as much as you can't say really say anything about a football game, you can't really say anything about a song. It's sort of like, here is the song. It, it turns you on or repulses you or leaves you indifferent. But no matter what anybody says after the fact, it can't really add anything to it. Um, even when you find out, hey, Jude, was really, hey, Jules, because Paul McCartney was feeling sad that Julian Lennon was blah, blah, blah. So he wrote this song as he drove over there. Hearing all of that, 
I don't enjoy it. I don't want, I never wanted to hear that. I just want it to be, hey, Jude, the song that the universe begins, the main, moment he starts singing. I thought I wanted to know all about it, but when I find out, and this goes for every mystery like this, just like where did the rabbit come from out of the hat? Why did you write that lyric? Why did the guy play that note? As soon as anybody tells the story, it's sort of half destroyed. And that's that's the um that's the kind of conundrum, the paradox with this with this whole thing about talking about songwriting is that I'm sort of to shed any light on it means destroying it as well. Um, the best thing I could possibly do would be to drop dead and then never do another interview, and then maybe in 20 years, you know, I will sort of achieve that mystery I've always been going for. Like Ian Curtis from Joy Division, he could never ruin any of this for anybody. You know, you've got, yeah. I went and saw Peter Hook play, Peter Hook from Joy Division and New Order. He played the first two Joy Division albums in their entirety. Um, once again, I couldn't really quite understand what all the lyrics were. I found myself Googling hmm. them to find out what they were. But to not be able to quite hear them and the fact that the guy who wrote them died a long time ago without getting to do a lot of interviews about what it was all about gives the whole thing this delightful mystery that it's almost impossible to compete with. I wish I could, I wish I could pull it all in. I wish I could pull in every interview I ever did and every article that's ever written about every f fucking thing I said on a radio or a TV station. I wish it was all gone and I could have a I, – I could be like a virgin in, in the fact that I'd never, ever said what any of my songs were. Nobody knew what any of the lyrics were or nobody knew that I arrived in Australia with my father who was a migrant who thought that the – Butter was too expensive in England, and um, you know, but that would be that. That is the optimum way for art to work, I think. To not know anything about it, um, for things like things were once upon a time in the old days, um, things would just fall out of the sky. That that way that we briefly had it with record shops and you know in my in my city there were a couple of record shops in Canberra you'd go in there um you'd buy a record you you looked at the cover you know you saw some of the song titles you might see a picture of the guys in the band and go wow and that was really all there was and you couldn't oh. there was no great library of information to access um i think there's something massive to be said for that. Yeah. You hit on it exactly. Like the stuff can't be explained descriptively. The music somehow, like, well, your music, when I first encountered it, it somehow evoked exactly how I felt, you know, deep down in the innermost self that no one else saw, like that sense of um, aching nostalgia. Yeah. The sense of, of regret, of regret at time passing, you know, the, uh, the melancholy of being human and 15 on a warm summer night at 2 a.m. when you're standing at the end of your parents' driveway looking down the street and it's everybody's asleep, the city's asleep, that feeling, you know, that you get there. Your music seemed to nail that. It's the first time I heard it, I thought, fuck, this guy knows exactly what that is and what that feels like. But I don't think you can do that in prose. 
you had a really good go at it right then, actually. I was I was seeing it all as you were saying that. Um, that is a feeling, that feeling, that feeling right there. Um, I Yeah, look, I think you can nail it with prose. I think you can nail that in a film. I think you can nail that with a poem. I think you can nail it with a song. And that that feeling there and many other feelings along those lines were what I was trying to do. And mm. it's strange but for every person like you that wants that in a song, there, as I say, there's a million, there's a, a thousand million that don't want that, that they don't want, they don't want longing or mystery or yearning or strangeness or dislocation or deja vu or all of these things I'm trying to get in my songs. Uh. Yeah, well, let them listen to something else, you know, those songs, that music isn't for them. I know, but the, the other music that they do want seems so much more popular than those things that you and I are looking for. And I'm that's the real mystery is why. Mm. I, look, I, I saw a video of Axl Rose and he was sitting in for ACDC. And there he is. He's sitting in a wheelchair because he's broken his leg. This great big sort of fat and bloated man with strange hairstyle and he's sitting there and he's going shoot to kill aim the thrill shoot to kill aim the thrill in this cartoon voice and in a field below him 60,000 german boys are just going off their brain like mm. having the best time ever and punching the you know doing their symbol and having a real party and i'm i'm at a loss to explain that to myself i'm like why what is it i can't understand and why don't people want yearning and longing and standing on at the edge of your parents drive on a warm summer night why is it hardly anybody wants that and everybody wants this other really ridiculous stupid thing i will never know but just it was it was like the kids in my garage on sunday afternoon who wanted rock round the clock two and three rocking then and so will we i'm like why why the fuck do you want to do this um and that's just what they wanted and hmm. the yearning and the longing and all of that not many people want it they still don't and they don't they 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 don't want it in films and they don't want it in books and they don't want it in their life. And I wonder what that is. And, and I wonder why only such a small section of the populace want that. It is interesting to note, though, for a little while, like in when the Beatles, when the Beatles did get weird and wild and psychedelic, for a while it seemed people did want that, you know. And, and like Strawberry Fields and I Am the Walrus and songs like that, they're the epitome of all those weird, strange, longing, mm. otherworldly things that seemed like for a while it all coincided that people did want that. And for me as, as a kid, I breathed a sigh of relief and thought, well, that's the end of all that garbage from the 50s, you know. Um, and But it wasn't yeah. to be. And the... The, the sort of the stupid rubbishy stuff came back and the and the 
the weird and occultish stuff found itself back on the outside again. Well, it seemed like there was a place for that sort of thing in the 80s still, you know, like the, a lot of the, the silly music and the shallow music came came back in spades in the 80s. But there were these uh, kind of shoegazer rock and all this, this stuff on the fringes that was a bit more sophisticated. I Look, I would say at any point in time, if you were to meet the equivalent of me or you in 2023, if you met some young guy who was at, at the forefront of making this music or writing about it, they would beg to differ with us and go, no, you're wrong. There are, there, is, there are people making this weird and wonderful and strange and mystical music. You just don't know about them. Um, mm. And I think in the 80s, you were young enough and hip enough that you still had your ears open and you were reading the reviews or you were looking for it and searching it out and you were finding this stuff in amongst all the dross, I would mm. I would venture that it's still probably the same. That if you could somehow if you could somehow know about it and fight your way through all the rubbish that's out there, I'm sure there are people making weird and wonderful music. There's gotta be. There's like it's it's heartening to me that there are now some TV shows in this huge plethora of stuff that's on available now on Netflix and Apple Plus. Every now and then someone is making a show about reincarnation or time travel or or something that is sort of different. The sort of things that I was trying to write about and the sort of things that you're you're looking for and when you when you when you travel around the side of things that you're looking at this this other side of life it's 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 people will always be interested in it but it's i just wonder why such a small percentage is interested in that and why the axel roses and um all the other stuff will always will always triumph over what i think is the sort of in, you know I don't even have a name for, the, for this weird and wonderful stuff. I don't know why that is. Hmm. So you've been described as the best um, songwriter in Australia by uh, yourself. Actually. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was that was a big mistake. I was going to ask you what uh, lyricists you admire, but uh, if, tell tell that story first before oh, I, before you go there. I um I had. Growing up, I had read about, I had read that sometimes in the English press, sometimes Lou Reed would be like this. Sometimes there were guys in England, they were very, they wanted to argue with the, with the status quo and they were boldly arrogant and full of themselves and they would be dismissive of everything else and whatever they were doing was the best thing and I thought that would be a really interesting character to play. I didn't really think I was the best songwriter in Australia or anywhere else. I thought, wow, this would be an interesting, this would be an opportunity to present myself as one of these arrogant um, sort of enfant tarab, you know, sort of guys who makes these incredible proclamations about himself. And so I did that interview, you know, I'm the best songwriter in Australia. 
And the guy said, really, that's a bit much. I went, well, who else is there? And then, um, boy, I was like, I was like a pariah. Everywhere I went for about a month after that, people were like, in Australia, they really don't like that caper. Mm. You know, in Australia, we're really supposed to be like, you know, if someone says you're a great songwriter, you're supposed to go, oh, shucks. Ah, oh, really? You think so? Thank you. Wow, that's really nice. You know, that's how you're supposed to be. And, and really, that is how you should be. You know, like, that's that's how I would be now if, if someone said that. That's how I feel now is like, I really appreciate you saying that. I thought it would be interesting. Uh, I just thought it was like I was creating a character, this arrogant, big mouth, blustering, egomaniac, and immediately the magazine came out and I bought the first one and I read it and I saw the people around me I realized it was a huge mistake and I didn't have the I didn't really have the balls to carry it off and I didn't really want I didn't want I didn't have the I know I just didn't have the whatever it took the mojo to carry that off and um, everybody fucking hated me for saying that stuff and I became an object of ridicule and people were avoiding me so that was a big mistake yeah that didn't work out at all for me being that character uh, yeah pissing off the press never never works well no, right? no that or arguing with interviewers or arguing with reviewers yeah arguing back against a bad review i just because they they control the I they control the medium i know i i never understood that i went on making the same mistake um a few times I came up to do crucial interviews that could have been really important. We were going to get a cover story on the Melody Maker and the interviewer was this guy who'd given us bad reviews and so I decided to take him on. And, you know, I'll, you know, when you see in print, I'll take you on. And I really thought, and the guy just went, no, he just pulled the whole thing. There was no article. There was no cover. There was no review. And there was nothing. And that happened a few times the church. And um, wasn't always me either that um, blew it. They would just go, you try and take them on, and they just go, no, we're not going to fucking have anything at all. So you can't, you can't take the press on, definitely. And, and that's a really a lesson to learn. So songs, songs can evoke place through their lyrics and sound, and they can evoke place because they remind us of a time in our past. So I'd like to talk about both of those briefly. Like, so the first one, um, for example, the eighties takes me right back to high school, you know, to those formative years of love and loss and intense friendship. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how bad or, or tacky the songs are in hindsight, you know, that still evokes that, that's a memory in that time period with such vividness and immediacy. Yeah. Do you have any, any songs like that that take you back to a particular place or time in your life? You know, if you put on any, anything from the 1970s, um, it's going to do that, you know, the BGs or, you know, the stuff that was getting played on the radio all the time. Slade, I, I think everybody, there was this record called Slade Alive and every party I went to between like 1970, 1972, someone would play Slade Alive. So if I was to hear that, <clears throat> I, I'd be back there instantly. It's like, I think music and smells. Yeah. Um, yeah. I smelled, I don't know where I was 
it was a while ago now, but I, I, somewhere, I, somewhere I found a tube of this pimple cream I used to use, and I un, undid the cap and sniffed it, and immediately my whole bed, my whole bathroom where I used to live in Canberra when I was sixteen appeared before me, like in a wave, mm -hmm. like with detail. It's like it's like a tantalizing flash of everything. And yeah. I felt like if I could stand there and sniff the tube all day, it would you could sort of manifest these memories. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, music definitely does that for me and everybody. It it brings back our youth. It does it in a way that just talking about it or describing it doesn't do though, right? Like it's it anchors in such a strong way that you just hear have to hear the first few notes to be completely pulled back there in a way that just telling a story doesn't do that. Totally. Totally. Why there's such a huge market, you know, for musical, there are stations only play the eighties and everybody yeah. driving along, listen to the eighties when that song comes on and the people driving along, listen to the seventies and there's Peter Frampton going, wow, 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 wow. And suddenly you're back there and you're young and, your mum and dad are still alive and your dog your dog's still alive and you still got that car and it 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 brings it all back. That's that's definitely what it does. You know, they're experimenting with um music in treatment of people with dementia. Yeah, I've seen this. And I I saw it firsthand with my own mother. Um I I I had been doing a gig somewhere near her retirement village in her early days of dementia. And I turned up and she didn't she didn't really know who I was or she didn't know what was going on. And I whipped out my guitar and played under the Milky Way. And I said, I bet you remember this one. And the words were coming to her and she, something quite peculiar. And her eyes were getting wide and she was singing along with it. And I could see it was capable of penetrating areas that the rest of the mind had sort of locked off a long time ago. Mm. She didn't know who I was. I couldn't remember anything, but this song she could remember. And I guess that's what it does. And when, when music, that first lot of music that rushes in when you're a teenager and you're susceptible to this sort of thing, and you get to this certain age, 14, 15, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older, suddenly you access that perfect record, that one you've really wanted to find, and there it is. It won't matter. You'll never be able to dislodge it, and you'll never be able to think clearly about it even. Even if you become – I saw this, this guy uh, who'd been a long-time fan of the church. He was a – He's he's got a like a, a master's degree in classical music, and he came in while we were rehearsing, and he was going to um, do some classical arrangements for our music. And he came in, and despite that he was now a guy in his fifties, and he he knew everything there was to know about Mozart and Beethoven and all the instruments, just hearing this simple, simplistic stuff that we were playing. He was standing there absolutely delighted and it was was blowing it all out of the way, all the stuff that he'd learned and known since. And he was taking him right back to being 15. I I think that's what I think that's what it does. Somehow it just 
effortlessly goes back to those formative years and blows all discursive thought right out the window, you know, because you listen to the remindlessness and all of that, it'd be very hard for you to ever just to sit down and approach it because it comes laden with so much emotional baggage and so many memories. You can never think clearly about it ever again. Yeah, there's, there's a magic in it still, huh? Yeah. Yeah, music is still one of the one of the few things that where magic still exists in the world. It's it's um it's really good value for money. I mean, I bought this T-Rex record when I was 16. Theoretically, I could still have the same copy copy something I bought, you know, 52 years ago and it still gives me the same pleasure that it did then. And we'll do for the rest of my life, no matter how old I am, I'll be able to put that record on and get all that pleasure. So it's really a great value for money because you can't watch a film or read a book over and over and over and over, but you can listen to music over and over and over. And in fact, even enjoy it more because you have listened to it over and over. So it's definitely as a sort of a, um, a source of entertainment and pleasure, it's the best value that there is. So do you find yourself drawn back to that stuff more than listening to something new, for example? Oh, totally. I've totally become an old, reactive old curmudgeon, just like all, everybody does. So when I'm driving along in my car <clears throat> and I've got a radio and I'm fiddling around the station, I don't want to hear something made yesterday or last week or I don't want to hear what's at the top of the charts now. I'm looking for that station that's um playing the 60s and the 70s for sure that's what i want to hear that's that's the stuff that gives me pleasure and inside myself i'm disappointed that i've turned into that such a nostalgic old coot but i'd I'd rather hear probably one bad song from the 70s than 100 brilliant examples from two from 2022 I find I go back to, uh, I don't listen to a lot of new stuff, but a lot of, I listen to a lot of new old stuff, like stuff I never knew about because I grew up in the 80s, basically. That was my teenage years. So I'm going back to the 70s and, and 60s music more and more and discovering some of, uh, probably because you mentioned quite a few of them to me over the years, you know? Yeah. Old Bowie, um, Beatles, Doctors of Madness, Japan, some of these, uh, some of these bands. So I, I've been exploring backwards rather than forwards. I'm glad to hear Doctors of Madness mentioned in there. They were one of my favorites for a while. Okay, so so songs about specific places. I'm going to do um, like a bit of a rapid fire here. I'm going to throw out some names of a few songs about places, and you give me your thoughts on them. And don't don't you know be be as scathing as you want to be. Don't hold back here. So the first one, um, Africa by Toto. Yeah, I hate that song. Um, I I'm baffled. Uh, it's strange. It's strange that I have to ask myself, it seems so bizarre, that line, I bless the rains down in Africa. Um, I do have to give it to them because normally it's very hard to get such a disconnection in a song. Like, it seems so random and bizarre that that could be the chorus of a song. And I could never understand, I don't understand why he is, Blessing the rain down in Africa. 
I I don't know. I really I really hate Toto and I hate that song though. Um, I, the other night it came on the radio when I was driving along on my own, and I couldn't find anything else. And I really listened to it carefully. I t- really tried to figure out. I was like, now, Stephen, you're going to listen to this and you're going to figure out what the story is behind this. But I couldn't. It's just as as surreal as anything I ever wrote. Like to suddenly you hear all this stuff. You know, she's waiting there for you. La, 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 la. And then suddenly I bless the rains down in Africa seemingly comes out of nowhere. Um, so I, I definitely congratulate him on on arriving there at that point. But it it's really baffling to me um, what the fuck that song's all about. Not that songs should be about anything, but I really don't know what the fuck that's all about. It's nothing you? to do with Africa. You? you know, it's funny. Oh, but I, I liked it because it was um, the time period, right? They took me back to, yeah, yeah. you know, eighth grade yeah. or something. But Toto were playing yeah. here in uh, in Berlin a couple of summers ago. There's a big festival in Spandau at the Citadel. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe we should go see, you know, just sort of a flashback. And I, I listened to a bunch of their other songs. They were, I, I hated them all. <laughs> so I, I figured there's, there's no way I'm going to sit through that entire evening, you know, just to hear that one at the end. Yeah. That's, that would be that would be too much. Okay, uh, a better one. Um, Great Southern Land, Ice House. Yeah. Oh, look, I think he really nailed it. I love that song. I love the um, I love the idea that um, the verse, you know, on a rainy day down in the harbour, like it, that it's all it's all set in Sydney Harbour. It's just a bloke, and then the sort of the song pulls back, the focus pulls back. And you've got all of Australia and, you know, the ghosts of time. They burn you black, black against the sand. I think he really nailed it. Um, he he reconciled all that shit in one song. And mm. I really like that one. Yeah, that's a thumbs up from me, definitely. Yeah. Does that capture the feeling of uh, Sydney or Australia for you? Yeah. Yeah. On a rainy day down in the harbour. I'm really there. I'm standing right next to him, sort of understanding, reconciling the two sides of Australia. You know, he's down in Circular Quay and there's all the boats and the tourists and it's raining. And then later on in the song, he's walking alone like a primitive man with the ghosts of time. And, it's you know, the sun and the going to burn you black. I think within that four-minute block of sound, he's captured definitely something about Australia. I really, I, I wish I had written that fucking song. That's for sure. There's a song that kind of gets gets me that way, um, called Saint Lawrence River. It's by a guy called David Usher. He was a singer for a Canadian band, Moist. He captures right. that feeling of you know the icy river on on a winter night where there's just you know crusted, lightly crusted with ice and bits and pieces floating. And uh-huh. when I hear that, it's uh, it immediately takes me to. Um, a time when I was maybe 14, you know, and in Montreal at my, with my cousin Pat's and he was having girl problems. He was a couple of years older than me. And uh, we, we got a two for a beer because you could get served, you know, at an underage in Quebec pretty easily. And we carried it down to the banks of the river where the, this greasy gray water is flowing past, you know, and the hunks of ice and it's cold. And we're just sitting there drinking beer on a cold winter night, talking about our troubles. That uh-huh. song really, really captures that, uh, that feeling and kind of that aspect of Canada as well. The other band that really does um, gets Canada is the Tragically Hip. They, everybody oh, he, loves them. He just died, didn't he? 
Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Everybody yeah. loves them because I think, I think because they they name drop a lot of places and they reference uh, a, a lot of sort of the things that that draw Canada together. And they also didn't give a fuck about becoming popular in the U.S. That yeah. was the other big thing. You know, they they toured Canada over and over, and they didn't even try to break it uh, down south where everybody else goes to get big, and then forgets where they came from. So these guys really, oh, their songs really nail. Uh, Gordy, yeah, Canada, yeah, yeah, Gord Downey, yeah, yeah, Gord, yeah. Um, I think by the time I was exposed to them, I was I had already wouldn't have liked it, but I I think if I had been exposed to them before that, I might have liked them. Yeah, it's funny. I liked them early on in high school, and then I didn't really get why everybody was so into them after that until I went away. Yeah, and then kind of looked yeah. back at you know at home from a distance, and then I started to. Yeah. Kind of get what they're on about, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, a couple, a couple more from that time period. One night in Bangkok, Murray Head. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> yeah, would that qualify as like a novelty song? One night in Bangkok, um, yeah, I like. I think I like that song. Um, I think I hated it at the time because it was, I was sitting around in Stockholm, and it was on TV all the time because Abba wrote it and it's chess wasn't it from a from their musical chess um i've only been to bangkok a little bit i think it's sort of not too bad you know doing its evocative work that's sort of the confusion and the color and the joy and the ups and downs it's such a bizarre song i don't have any Normally, like with Africa, I could sit here and bitch about it and cr- critique it. That song, I sort of like. I'm just sort of like, oh, um, it doesn't really go in my computer and come back out. I just go, yeah, yeah, that's quite a song. It's a weird song. Eh? It just seemed to come out of nowhere. It it it's an amazing song that those guys sat there and, and wrote that. Yeah, mm. um, full marks to you for thinking of that one. Uh, Boys of Summer, Don Henley. That one yeah. brings back those humid summer nights, you know, when you're a teenager. I think he, I think he nailed it. I think I, I always love to hear that one come on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finding out there was Dylan Thomas connection there as well. I didn't know that. Yeah, Dylan Thomas had a poem called "The Boys of Summer." Look, I think I think that's a marvelously successful and wonderful song. I remember when we were making Starfish. Someone mentioned that, and I piped up and said, "Hey, that's a really good song." And one of those producers went, "Damn right, it's a great song." Oh, you like that, do you? Damn right. So you finally, there's one fucking song that you can admit is good. <laughs> and they were surprised that I would like it, but um, no, that's a that's yeah. a fucking brilliant song for sure. Yeah, the lyrics and really capture the atmosphere. I have those. Yeah. That the sort of the sense of freedom of that summer cruising down the road, you know, with the top down, the music yeah. playing, yeah. a girl next to you. That that's that feeling of yeah, the summer's and, never going to end. And of. that feeling, th- that feeling of wanting to say to the girl, "I will love you much more than any of these guys ever will." But now you've run away with them. Mm. But I'm really the serious one. You should have, and you sort of undervalued me. Yeah. Uh, I think we've all we've all been through that. I, I think that line, you know, the deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little voice in my head said, you can't go back. I think 
I think that's all brilliant. Yeah. It really is. The whole, the whole song is just sort of pop perfection in a four-minute slice of just wonderment. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's a good line. I mean, something a little darker. And dark, yeah. Mm. It's got a hint of darkness. Yeah. yeah. It's that's that's what gives it life forever. That the that the contradiction within it will make people keep on turning to to it over and over. Because yeah. just a flat out dark song, you know, that's nothing. And a flat out happy song is nothing either. But a song that contains sort of light and darkness is sort of a thing of wonderment that you you know you're going to go on listening to forever yeah. trying to because nobody wants one dimensional stuff no that's something that you guys were good at too you would have um really upbeat music but then the lyrics would be quite dark at a, but a sung in a cheerful way you know the, that's that contradiction's really interesting yeah yeah or placing or having some really um sort of highbrow lyrics followed by just a sort of mundane line delivered in a really cynical way you know like saying yeah uh was it mistress was like that right yeah talking about this halo you wear in your head and then you yeah, haven't seen one of those for years just the the counterpoint of that is really cool oh good um i think you know like a song if a song can take you a lot of places within 4 minutes like you know cynicism hope despair um disdain it, you know a song that can have all of that you know in four minutes is wonderful mm. i think rather than you know shoot to kill bang the thrill <laughs> it doesn't go it doesn't go start going anywhere and doesn't take you anywhere i mean it's all over you've gone nowhere yeah. but mm. um that's why i would imagine in 20 years time no one will be listening to that but well, I hope not. The Boys of Summer and Great Southern Land and yeah. some of these other ones, they people will be still listening to them. Well, then there's one hope. Then there's some artists who um, don't just capture a place in a single song, but they seem to capture um, an entire region or or a demographic, like Springsteen's early work. Yep. Yeah. What did you think about that? Totally. I remember when I first I had a girlfriend and. I said, when we first met up, so who are you listening to? She said, Bruce Springsteen. It was like right at the beginning, just before Born to Run came out and was a huge success. And I remember going around her place and she's played the album Born to Run, but it was before it was really successful. It was sort of, it had come out and it took a little bit. And I realized this guy had, when the album was over, he had sort of um, mapped and claimed an entire shtick which is the hardest thing in the world to do is when you first start out this sort of um area that becomes yours but he definitely had that as epitomized my favorite song was backstreet yeah yeah um on that album all the you know the the alleys and the abandoned beach house and he saw it and he he moved in and he claimed it as his and I like that version of spring scene more than the, I, I like that, that wild guy from New Jersey driving down the endless highway. And I like that more than the, the tired worker and the, I don't know. I like that Bohemian early spring scene more than the sort of the guy fighting for the, 
rights of the little man or whatever it was. But I guess he sort of melded it all together. Yeah. So I like the river. Do you remember yeah, that one? He, yeah, he read the river. Yeah, yeah. where the, the guy the, the guy's from the factory town who you know is dating this yeah. girl, knocks her up, and his whole future is sort of charted out in this depressing way that for my nineteenth birthday I got a I got a wedding a union card and a I wedding got a union card and a wedding card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm from a, a four thousand person town, you know, and it's like that. Uh, he really captures. You got to really, you got to really admire him for creating that whole niche, yeah. like that was always just sitting there, and nobody had really. Only Dylan had even mm. vaguely touched on it, mm. and then bang, he he just mined the whole thing. It was incredible. Uh, what about some the instrumental tracks on Low? Bowie's uh, Berlin album. That's really cool. I did. I love them. I I love them right from the rock first from the first moment I heard them. Um, I didn't have any trouble with it. It just seemed that was the sort of wonderful thing David Bowie could do. You know the made up language and the the kind of the decaying grandeur and the absolutely brilliant like monumental stuff. Mm. I still get as much pleasure out of hearing that as I did back in the day. It's hard to imagine. A lot of people didn't like that when it came out, that record. Hmm. It got a lot of bad reviews and it baffled a lot of reviewers. But I was like 22 and I just effortlessly took it on and loved it without questioning and still do, yeah, amazing, evocative. I think I didn't connect to that record until the first time I came to Berlin. Like we came here, it was December, and it's a really gloomy city in the winter, you know, and everything's graffitied and kind of broken down, nothing works right. And you have that sort of gray, European gray, you know, that that sense of uh, gloom and melancholy. And his that those instrumental tracks on on the flip side of low totally nail that feeling. Yeah. Of walking the streets here late at night on a December night. What about uh, Bel Air by the church? Interesting. Um I was living in Canberra where it was cold and frosty and there was no fun or girls or there was no beach, there were no palm trees. It seemed like I would have been stuck at this point forever and I saw this show out of the corner of my eye about some teenagers living somewhere in L.A., and I slunk off to my bedroom and tried to evoke that with my song. But I knew absolutely nothing. Bel Air isn't even by the sea or anything. Um, it was me trying to reimagine a little TV show I'd just seen with some sort of world weariness and it's so long ago. I can't. I. I. All. All. I, I. I. remember writing it. I remember sitting there, trying to bring back the that feeling of the TV show. I try and imagine I was really there. I have to give kudos to Peter Coppers. I played it. The band I was in that was Baby Grand. Mm -hmm. I played it to them, and they didn't like it at all at the time. They were like, "What the fuck is that?" And when we got the church together, Peter Copper said, I think it's time to bring back that song, Bel Air. And I said, 
I don't even really remember it. And he remembered it and played it. And it was sort of me, me desperately wishing I was somewhere else, leading another life, De- desperately wishing I was in Los Angeles, driving a convertible car and having fun with girls and surfing and doing all the things that were so far from my life at that point in time. I sort of like, I wished, I wished that song into existence. A lot of people really like that one. I think that's the that's the one of the very earliest songs that I ever wrote that is sort of actually extant, extant, I should mm. say, that you can hear, that you can listen to or hear. It's definitely one of the very earliest things that I that ever made it. That was even before the the um four track. Wow. That was yeah. That was before the four track. It was like riding the dying days of Baby Grand when I was thrashing around, just like like the way Springsteen had found suddenly with Born to Run, he suddenly had found his his arena. He found his his stage where all the stuff was happening and all the characters, and it was you know I was looking for that and I couldn't find it. Uh, I couldn't find it in Baby Grand, but I. Just as Baby Graham was sort of going under, I sort of had this good stab at something that if it hadn't been for Peter remembering it, the song never would have surfaced. So hmm. it was sort of like an early an early fluke where I got it, got it right a bit, I think. Yeah. It was always one of my favorite ones off the album, off that first oh, album. Yeah. It's, it's got that surreal, the surreal lyrics, you know, the sense of place that I always... Um, latched onto because i was living in a four thousand person town and i'd never been anywhere so those sorts of yeah lyrics but when it comes to Uh when it comes to writing about place though your your music works on a different plane in a sense because uh, even when you refer to distant places or ancient places you know like persia on lost or or the amazon river on, on hotel womb it never seemed to me that it was about those places in a literal sense but rather about the feelings or images those names called up totally Totally. Look, I never really go anywhere, even if you take me to, if you actually were to take me to Persia or you actually take me to the Amazon River, I sort of have a wall of whatever I am that's built up to protect me from taking part in it, you know, which is why I'm not a very good tourist and why I wouldn't be a very good travel writer. I like to experience all this stuff from a long, long way away. I'm as interested in hell in in Persia, but I don't want to go there and ride a camel. But I will sit here and reading sit here reading a book about it all day. I'm very much a an armchair warrior. I like my sort of civilized comforts, and I like to put the book down and turn the show off. I would take the record off. I don't really want to be there amongst it, which is probably the difference between you and me. Um, mm. I just want I just want the sort of vague impressions of it to use in my lyrics. I yeah, as you say, I, I'm just I'm using the spirit of these places, not the reality of them at all. And Bel Air is the same. It's like wherever it was, whichever city or whichever thing I'm throwing around. It's only an idea of it 
it's never the real thing, you know? It works on the same level that some of your other songs work in ter- in the sense of using these vague lyrics to convey a feeling or um, a sense of longing or wonder for these places, you know, like those names themselves convey uh, so much. They're so layered with meaning. They do. Uh, they do. Yeah. Um, it's funny how Persia has got so much wallop and Iran has none, you know, yeah. do you want to read a book on Iran? No. You want to read a book on Persia? Yeah. That sounds interesting. I guess Siam and Thailand is the same. Like, there's yeah. a lot of places like that. You know, the uh, the old whatever it used to be seems a lot more interesting than whatever it is now. Yeah, that's true. I, old place names on maps always evoke that for me too. Yeah, the Slave Coast or the Gold Coast or the yeah Burma rather than Myanmar. Yeah, look, I'm not much of a traveler. Um, I'm not much of a I'm not much of a tourist. Sit at home and think about Persia, but Heaven forbid I'd actually have to fucking go there. Travel by thought, I guess. Huh? I don't think I'd go down very well. <laughs> okay, so before before I let you go, um, yeah. tell me about your, your new album, the New Church album. You've said it's a concept album. Okay, okay. The New Church album is a kind of a vague concept. It's about, um, it's set in 2054, which is a uh, 100 years after I was born. Um, the biggest rock star in the world is a guy called Eros Zeta, and he has a band called the Perfume Guitars, and he lives in Antarctica, uh, which is one of the few relatively habitable places left. And he hears about, uh, he's sort of dried up artistically, he can't write any new songs. And he hears that a woman in Korea, it used to be North Korea till an American friend of mine read the synopsis and said, Steve, Get rid of the North Korea. They ain't gonna <laughs> like that. The people people go fucking nuts about North Korea. So I so I've changed it to Korea. And I said, look, I'm changing it to Korea. And he said, that's good. He said it leave, leaves the ambiguity open that maybe those North and South have reconciled in the intervening years. So it was North Korea, but a woman in Korea has invented this machine called the Hypnogob, and because it's a sort of a it's sort of a rundown future. It's not a. It's like a future where everything's kind of falling apart and broken down. She's invented this kind of machine that helps people um, drag songs out of their head. Songwriters who can no longer write songs. She's got this machine, and they're. She's having a lot of success with it, and they're having a lot of hits with the music that is being written by the hypnagogue, but um, it has some deleterious effect on the people who listen to it, which I never is never specified. It's just the bare bones of a story that he got, he goes to Korea to work with her. They fall in love. It has disastrous consequences for them both. And the songs that it produces are bad for the people who listen to them. That's really it. And then there's like 13 or 14 songs sort of loosely stretched around that concept. So it's a very, very loose concept. It's not like Tommy where everything sort of happens sequentially and this is happening and that's happening. And there's there's some little guides in the notes to the album to tell you what's happening in each song. But it's all, it's all, I hope, pleasantly vague 
you wouldn't have to understand anything to enjoy it either. You could listen to the album and enjoy it without knowing any of that stuff that I just said. So you seem to be drawn to um, concept albums lately. Yeah. Like with um, 11 Women and uh, Songs for Another Life. Yeah. What's, why, why all of a sudden this? this track and and i've done two with martin kennedy too um jupiter mm-hmm. 13 and persephone nimbus i i just suddenly realized they're a good vehicle to hang a bunch of songs together it's a it's like a really interesting starting point instead of having 10 completely unrelated songs that you can you can tie them all together and i guess priest equals aura was almost getting there it was I was just going to say that. I was yeah. going to ask you if this, if she had something like that in mind then, because that's the most coherent sort of unified album yeah. of, of all your, your, your earlier yeah. stuff, I think. The most perfect album I've, that I can think of. Well, the Hypnagogue is sort of like that. It's sort of like, a, it's like an incredibly vague concept, and you can discard the concept if you want, or you can do a lot more work in your own mind to make it all come alive i imagine i imagine you know 100 people who listen to it some of them will do some work to oh now this is happening and now that and this is this and this connects with that and that and other people are like oh i don't care about all that i just i just like the sound of it um so that's really that's really all it is so has the way you um the approach making music changed like from the days of big record companies and expensive studios in LA to the way you're doing it now? No, there's no attachment to a result anymore. Um, it's strange. I often find myself arguing with guys when we're making records and they go, Hey, this has got to be shorter. And I go, why? And it's like, well, you know, this is almost five minutes now. And I'm going, so what? Like, it's not going to get played on the radio. There's no, executives who are going to have to give it the stamp of approval it can be whatever we want it to be there's still but still there's a bit of that even with me hangs over that it's sort of like oh we've got to make it shorter we've got to make it more concise and more punchy and thinking in those sort of outmoded terms that no longer apply to us there's a little bit of that still in there but uh, but the way i still make music is just what I would have done in 1977 with my four track. I I go in and I look for a sound, a riff or a feeling or a beat or just the barest thing, barest minimum to get me going. And I'm off and running and I let it build up and I let it ride itself. Like, so that, that hasn't, that still hasn't changed. And you still write the lyrics afterwards after yeah. listening to the music. Yeah. 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 Very much so. And you said you said somewhere that you don't know where the words come from. They just you, you hear the track a few times, and then the song just sort of downloads into your head. I pretty much almost start singing, like so. I hear the music, and then I'll pretty much often the first line will, you know, she was lonely standing there, you know, and I go, oh, that's the beginning, um, and then I'll start writing it all down, but at some point it just sort of comes from nowhere yeah. and and then you get a little bit of an idea and then you can follow that you know and how much do you revise afterwards i very rarely revise it very 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 rarely 
this album, I did write some Duff lyrics that I went back and revised. I wrote some lyrics I was really unhappy with, but I couldn't think of anything better. And then I gave it a long break and I went back in the studio and I could bear to get rid of them and write some new ones. Sometimes it's hard when you've written something to throw it away and put something else over there, but I managed to I managed to write some much better things than, than what was already there. I think in your memoir, you were talking about Earthed, the, the record you made to go along with the poems you'd written earlier. You said, um, like the book, the record's a bit of a grab bag of sounds. There's some very good stuff on there, and there's some some stuff for aficionados only. Definitely. It was like, I love the idea of the album and the book, but typically I didn't follow through as much as I could or should have which is a shame as it was halfway there, but I wanted the book and record out there much more than I wanted to do the work of getting it, getting the material ready. That's me all over. That's yeah. me all over. Um, great at dreaming up a grandiose idea, very bad at following through. And because I'm used to working with these fleeting little ideas that come quickly, you know, like I write a song and it's all over in five minutes. The music and the words, it's all done. That makes it hard when you operate in such a mercurial sort of place to go, I'm going to have a book and I'm going to have music and it's all going to fit together. That can't happen so mercurially. It has That requires planning and revision and... All those things I'm not very good at and sort of lose interest in really quickly. So I'm glad that I found my niche, which is to dream up stuff quickly and put it down and move away. And that's how my writing is, my prose. Not that I've done a lot lately, but that's how it would be. I'm not very good. And sometimes I read a proper book by a proper writer and I'm amazed at the work that's gone into it to conjure up everything they're conjuring up. It's not only got that quick mercurial grabbing at this and that, but behind it all is this huge job of concrete thinking. I'm not very good at that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so quickly. I, I so, so, so definitely I agree with myself. I wanted the idea of having a book and a record that went with it. And I wanted that. I wanted the achievement but I didn't actually have the discipline to find out if I could do it properly because it could have been a really, it still could be an amazing idea, but there's a lot of work in that that I don't know if I'm capable of. Even even as I start to contemplate it, something in me goes, uh, uh, I think let's do something easier than that. Uh, <laughs> I want to sit down and think about a book, you know. Um, so I'm always... I think I think this pop music was a great place for me to be, and it's a great place for a lot of people to be. You can imply loads of shit you don't have to actually do. Like, I can write a song about Persia without knowing anything about Persia, without having been to Persia, without having met a Persian, or knowing anything at all about it, but with the illusion of pop music, uh, even to a guy who's actually like you, does travel around, sees the real thing. I can somehow, with this this whimsy, I can I can capture something about it, 
without really knowing anything about it at all. I think that's the beauty of even with Toto, you know, in that three, four-minute song, he blesses the rain down in Africa. I mean, that's a huge that's a huge place to get to within four minutes, even if you don't like the way he does it. Yeah. I think I'm I think I'm working in the right place. And but my hat really goes off to people who do put a lot of planning and work and building, creating these universes within a book. Obviously, Tolkien being the number one guy like that, not in not only creating entire universes, but mapping it all out physically and having languages and you know, you can learn these languages. They have yeah. You know, they follow grammatical rules and it also makes sense. Um, that kind of intellect, I completely, I'm in awe of. He constructed an entire mythology for each of those um, yeah. races or peoples in his books too, right? The whole volumes of yeah. stuff, yeah. backstories and yeah. mythologies that they look back to yeah. that don't appear anywhere. That's Maybe right. Maybe as vague references, but that's right. Yeah, that, that thorough. Yeah. And he, un- he opened the door for every other fucking sword and sorcery guy that ever came along he was the he was the prime mover but that's absolute genius and then there's you know i bless the rain down in africa where for four minutes there's a bit of mercurial stuff and then it's all over with without any real explanation well i think it worked a bit better with the uh, art man and technology stuff when you, you you wrote some poems to go along with the paintings Oh yeah, exhibits and then put them to music. Yeah, a lot of those like they were nailed perfectly. I think. Okay. Some of the early ones, the Lonely City, um, yeah, the Visitor. Yeah. Well, thank you. Those ones, the writing came together perfectly in those. I think so. Whatever you were going for, maybe with Earth, I think that's you seem to have nailed it there. Well, thank you once again. You read it at a, at a period of an age and a period when it you probably didn't apply as much critical observation to it as you might if you encounter that book now that's not true because that's um i already i'd already met you multiple times when that came out oh, okay so we were talking about i think we were talking about this backstage i think once in buffalo yeah so i mean i i raked that one over pretty well so i'm not just being charitable here or uh nostalgic i think that was really solid i appreciate it and i think it's, it helps too that um your reading voice is so good you know like you your pacing because you're a singer the pacing of the words and the, the the delivery of the poems is much better than like writers don't read their stuff aloud very well yeah it's it's theoretically a really good idea um to have something that is a poem and a song and a painting and it really is it is theoretically definitely a good idea if you can if you can pull it off right now i'm feeling really lazy and the thought of having to try to do something like that right right now makes me go, oh no, you know. I just want to get outside and have a swim. Yeah. Are you uh, are you feeling energetic enough to read us out with a poem? I have. I haven't got that poem printed out. Um, um, I was I was going to read that poem to you that you suggested. Do you want me to? If I find something else that is already printed out, is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. That one that I that I sent you, you wrote that on your blog one time, just randomly, uh-huh. and it it wasn't included in the in the collection. That uncollected, uncollected, uncollected. Um, let me for some reason that got missed. Yeah, let me see if I can find something. Okay, 
I'm grasping at straws here. I found a little book I contributed to. And there's a poem here I haven't thought about since I wrote it. So I'm just going to give it to you. I'll be sort of exploring it myself along with you. All right. As I don't remember it at all, okay? It's called My Life, the Poem, number two. Shadows on a screen, hushed, whispered, close, warm, dust motes in silver fallout, the rushes, the first coming first, the second for the colour, the third coming home, the fourth coming attractions, in the salty dark, the welcoming hit, in the pit of the orchestra, empty, desolate, but music lingering on and on. I could see it all at once, the cramped spaces, the magnitudes, the radii of clocks, round and round, pluperfect time, driven into this now, alleviation, antechamber of birth, waiting for my entrance, a cue, a prompt, a hand on the shoulder, pushing you out there, then we're on, flickering margins, faces, voices, sounds, detection of movement, the performance as performance, applause, pause, more applause, then curtains for certain. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorth.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. <laughs>